Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Latte Crime. I'm Sochi. And I'm Elena. This week we have a good episode for you guys. I mean, obviously a little on the disturbing side, but you know what I mean. I'm actually pretty excited about this case because I have heard about it um, before. When I was younger, I used to date this guy in high school who lived close to a railroad tracks, which you will learn in a few minutes. Um, railroad tracks are a huge part of this case, but his mom used to actually bring up the case or bring up these crimes uh, quite a bit when we were younger. Of course, you know, it's not something that happened in our lifetime or while well, we, you know, it happened way before we were even born, but we did hear a lot of scenarios from her where she would just say, you know, just how afraid she was in general of living so close to a railroad track. So uh, let's go ahead and, you know, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into this week's episode. So go grab your favorite cup of coffee and join us because we have a latte crime to cover. Today, we will be talking about Angel Macorino Resendez, also known as the, the Railroad Killer. And shout out to my mom, who was the one who actually told us and referred us to this case. She must remember his case and everything that was going on because it happened during the 70s, the early 70s. So Angel Maturino or Angel Maturino Resendez was born on August 8, 1960 in Izucar de Matamoros, Puebla, to his mother, Virginia de Maturino. I have to say it with a Spanish accent, you guys, because he is from Mexico. He, we will learn later, he is actually from Mexico and not from the U.S. So, wait, because I've never heard of this case. Like, I have heard of Angel Resendez because um, we listen to a lot of true crime. But I don't think I've ever really paid attention to the podcast that I've listened to because all I know is the railroad tracks. And I actually didn't even know that this happened in Houston. Yeah. So this is completely new to me. But, so wait, was he a citizen, or did he cross the border illegally? Was he here oh, killing girl, people? Oh, you're in for a ride. Oh, Lord. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. So, I say Angel Macorino Resendez, just to show you guys that I do speak Spanish, and I know that I should say it correctly, but I would probably say Angel. <laughs> so, does he, was he, like, Spanish-speaking only? Um, that's a good question that I'm not really sure about. They don't really talk about, like, anything. Um, there's not much information on, like, his education or anything like okay. that. Um because of the fact that they weren't really able to track him. <laughs> and oh. you'll see why here in just a second. He okay, wasn't cool. a typical, you know, kid who um, really attended school. I don't even think he graduated from high school. I mean, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, I'm sure he knew English, but he absolutely was not a U.S. citizen. Okay. And will, you will know exactly why here in just a second. But um, we couldn't find any information on his father's name. Um, but in one instance, we did find that his mother lived with him, but she got never got married. So. You know, he kept, she kept the same last name or he kept, you know, he has his last name. Um, but he also had a half brother and sister whose names were Florentino and Manuela. 
So Angel, or Angel, like many murderers or serial killers, had a very rough childhood, and by rough, I mean rough. His mother in court would testify that shortly after he was born, he was dropped on his head and turned very purple. Um, at his trial, the defense tried to even use this to explain his mental state, which they tried to use as a way to claim insanity, but we're going to learn a little bit later on that that was denied. Um, and just like a lot of criminal cases, right, they try to always um, figure out what causes it. We're, I know we're huge fans of that show. Um, what's it called? The one on Netflix where the, the where they go into the criminal mind and they're trying to figure out it's like an FBI show. Oh, the um, the Hunter? No, Mind Hunter. Mind Hunter. Yeah, yeah. Mind Hunter. So Mind Hunter, you know, that show is created specifically where it's it's a fictionist show. I mean, they 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 refer to a lot of the huge you know cases. Cases. Yeah, they they talked about Spin and Ted Bundy and everything. Yeah, but. Um, they try to figure out what causes these serial killers to, to you know, react to serial killers, right? Yeah. And so a lot of the time, a lot of podcasts that you listen to, you're going to hear that they were either dropped by their, you know, dropped on their head when they were kids, or they had some sort of head injury. So I always think that's crazy when they related to that. And the fact that his mom, you know, back then, she probably wasn't a very educated person. And the fact that she brought that up, um, whenever she was testifying in court, I mean, I, I just think that's insane. But, um, I mean, she she even brings that up in, in, in the sense of how he was brought up and what, what he went through as a child. So, Angel had a pretty turbulent childhood, we're going to learn. His mother herself had been subject to physical abuse or physically abusive parents and spouses and, and uh, basically didn't break the cycle of abuse with Angel. Um, Angel was himself was beaten regularly. At some point, the research doesn't say exactly when point at a relatively young age his mother sends him to live with his uncle who would rape and abuse angel for years and by the time he was eight or nine years old another man who lived in his neighborhood also raped and sexually abused him the man had also done the same to two other little boys in the neighborhood so unfortunately little angel went through a lot and i can't imagine that he was ever treated for his abuse and unfortunately, his story doesn't get any better. And by treated, I mean, you know, he probably didn't have access to any type of therapy or anything like that. Mental health you know, or anything yeah. to help him through his trauma. Exactly. So um, we learned that at the age of 11, he was reportedly attacked by a gang of students who beat him with a brick repeatedly, in which, again, he took several blows to the head. So they're referring injuries to the head once more. A couple years later, at the age of 11, Angel runs away from home, so he grows up alone with no supervision, no role model in his life, and with a history of sexual and physical violence. It really depends on what you read. Some is a little scarce on his background, and a lot still opens itself to a lot of questions. It really depends on what you read, what you read. Some is a little scarce on his background, and a lot still opens itself to a lot of questions. A profile done by People's Magazine states that his mother says he came back home at the age of 12, but did not want to leave his uncle's home, and that he saw him as his uncle. Well, I mean, yeah, like, that makes sense, because these kids get groomed to be taught this is okay, or... What we're doing is safe or, you know, so he's not going to think that anything's wrong because he's seven, eight, nine years old. He's growing up thinking that this is normal. That's going to be normal to any kid. So, of course, he's not going to want to leave his uncle because his uncle has shown him 
that that's his safe place because right. he wants to keep doing the shit that he's been doing to him, you know? So that's insane. So although I agree, you know, a lot of people are going to think it's a little weird to, to learn that, you know, since other sources say he was molested by him, right? Because again, you're saying, we're saying, right? The idea is they think not only they feel safe or safe space, or at least they have a, a roof over their head, but they think it's normal, right? right? But, you know, we see it from the outside looking in. We see that he was molested by this person. And, yep. And and then from there, you know, he has another incident at the age of 13 or 14. He went for a swim at a river and was assaulted by another group of boys. So I'm not sure which, what's the most accurate. You know, again, everything's hearsay and what we hear, like stories that are, you know, maybe somebody said who lived in the neighborhood or something like that. But wanted to go ahead and put that out there and you can go ahead and make your own judgment or, you know, believe whatever it is that you think you know again we have no idea with a lot of these cases we just kind of have to base it off of what other people say so while in no other world does this excuse any of what he would come to do i think we can all agree that this type of background definitely influenced what he does end up doing but it's fair to say that there's plenty of people who may have grown up the same way and don't go on to become serial killers or murderers. Yeah, I think that's the never-ending argument. Like, right. people choose break that cycle and move and choose to be better people, and then some people kind of just stay stuck. But he grew up so little at eight or nine, and this happening to him. So I can, I can feel sorry for his younger self. That's something that no child should ever grow up being treated as or being treated like. So now, before he goes back home, at the age of 11, he starts his, his bad habits, right? So at age 11, he begins sniffing glue, which I looked up pretty much provides the same feeling that marijuana does at a cheaper price and definitely more dangerous, depending on what or what or how much you're sniffing. So it can cause brain damage and other health problems, of course. So definitely don't sniff glue or, you know, just don't do drugs in general. <laughs> but during these years, he grows up on the streets alone and builds up a pretty impressive rap sheet in his later teens. At the age of 16 in 1976, he would be caught at the Mexican border in Bronzeville, Texas, and would be deported for the first time. So this just goes to prove he was not a U.S. citizen. This would be his first run-in with the law. In reading about all the times he was caught and sent back, I mean, this guy had really good coyotes bringing him over, or he just knew where to cross without getting caught because it's almost embarrassing how many times U.S. agencies caught him and would just send him back. But... To be fair, this was in the late 70s and 80s, 70s and 80s, and so you know computers and integracy, computers and interagency collaboration probably wasn't what it is today. But nonetheless, it's bad. Had these agencies kept better track of him, it likely could have saved the lives of his victims, meaning he wouldn't have had the chance to go around murdering people, but we will get to that. Yeah, I can totally agree. It was the late 70s and 80s. I think when my parents... Well, when my dad initially came over, they actually didn't cross by the river. They uh, crossed by railroad. So they crossed by train. I'm pretty sure that's the story that my uncle has told me. So I don't see this actually being a big, like a surprise. People crossed with the railroad all the time. That's how my dad got here. My dad and my brother and my, mm -hmm. my dad, my brother, my dad and my uncle. And my uncle did it twice. 
through the railroad. Wow. Yeah, so it's well, not. I, did not I didn't know that either. I did, I learned that recently because I like asking my parents their immigrant right. story. Right. And my uncle says that when he first came over, I can't remember if he told me he crossed by the river or by railroad, but definitely when he came with my dad, they crossed through the railroad. So, oh my gosh! Okay, so that's like time. Just tying into the story. Yeah. Because if that is how he was just so easily getting back into the States, I mean, that makes sense because that's how he figured how to get around. Yeah. And back then they wouldn't put them in, de- in jail. They literally would just yeah, send you back. Just, so it makes sense. Wow. So he gets deported in August and then a month later he is found in Michigan. Whoa, that's far. <laughs> yep. Okay. Gets deported again, and then a month later, he again he's found in McAllen, Texas, and is deported again in October. So he's pretty active when it comes to to crime, right? They're finding him easily. I mean, I don't know how they would find one person or be able to pinpoint. So there has to be crimes associated with it. Yeah, I was about to I say, why did he keep getting deported? Yeah, it would it would have to be either homelessness or you know maybe he was like. Yeah, petty crimes. Nothing comes up exactly as to what he was doing and why he was getting sent back. But after this, I think he probably thought, all right, let me chill because that's too many times in three months. So he gets a little quiet and kind of slows down. And it's not clear at what point he came back into the States. But in 1979, he was sentenced to prison for 20 years in Miami, Florida for auto theft and assault. But is paroled after just six years and deported once again. So over the next 10 years, he is in and out of jail in 1986 for claiming false citizenship in Texas, again in 1988 for possessing a concealed weapon in New Orleans, Louisiana, 30 months for attempting to defraud Social Security in St. Louis, Missouri, then in 1992 for burglary charges in New Mexico, and then finally in 1995 in Santa Fe at a rail yard for trespassing and carrying a firearm. So he definitely got around. He got around. And these aren't really petty crimes. I mean, this is now this is a lot. He's definitely advanced, right? So at the beginning, I'm assuming they probably deported him for, you know, Small maybe. Crimes. Yeah. Or, or like, you know. He um, maybe like trespassed trespassed or, or you know, and trespassing. I mean, mm-hmm. that has to be if, if that's how he was even getting back into the states. That makes sense because let's say you get back into the states in a railroad track or on a on a, on a train. train, and then you get to the you know y- the yard or whatever it is, wherever tr- railroads or wherever uh, trains stop. I mean, he's trespassing, right? Mm-hmm. Wherever they're going, it's typically going to be a business or something like that. So that could have been an easy way, but his crimes definitely advanced. Um, and I mean, he was deported every single time. So this just shows up on his criminal record. I mean, how many deportations can one have before you're like sentenced to life in prison? Like they obviously cannot control this person. They have no way. And they keep sending him back instead of, I mean, he was sentenced to 20 years and after six years, they sent him back. And at this point it's like, okay, can they not put him in jail because he's not a U.S. citizen or do they just not care or are they just not really looking into the background? Because I would think like, okay, you've been deported five, six times. What are you getting deported for? And can we now put you in jail for a longer period of time? Right. So I'm wondering where the disconnect was. But he was relentless. And every time he would come back. At some point while he was in jail, some reports state that he was gang raped while there. I guess it's worth mentioning that Angel was a small man. He wasn't very tall and wasn't heavy set. 
even as a child or an adolescent. So I could see how that would make him an easy target and subject to bullying in school and an easy target, especially in jail. Two years later, in 1997, after the last recorded deportation, he would show up in Kentucky where he would kill his first victim, Christopher Meyer. Christopher Meyer was 21 at the time of his death, a student at the University of Kentucky, where one fatal night he and his girlfriend, Holly Dunn Pendleton, were walking along the tracks near the college. Christopher was bludgeoned to death reportedly with a 50-pound rock. Oh, and he was small but strong. Mm-hmm. And Holly was left for dead after being severely beaten and raped. Holly miraculously survives and would later testify against him at Rosinda's trial. Holly would become the only survivor, and in 2017, she wrote a book called Soul Survivor, where she recounts her story. The recount of her story I'm about to tell you comes from an episode of 48 Hours, which originally aired back in 2013. The episode, of course, goes much more into detail, and her book goes even way more into detail. So, you know, go watch it if you want to hear the whole story, or go get her book. She begins when Angel appeared, and pretty much starts, he pretty much starts or approaches them as a robbery. He had a weapon which he used on Christopher and Holly. Never, oh, he had a weapon which he used on Christopher, and Holly never really made out what it was. Something like a knife, a screwdriver, an ice pick. But he had it to Christopher the whole time. Angel would tie them up and lay them next to each other. And Holly says that they were talking, and Stuart, Holly and Christopher were talking, strategizing on what to do when Angel literally comes over and just drops the rock on Christopher's head. I mean, can you imagine everything that had to have gone through Holly's mind at that very moment, watching her boyfriend die, watching him murdered in, right before her eyes? I can't even imagine. Like, that's just so random. He literally like, just came up He dropped a huge rock on his head. But what were they doing? Because we already said he was a small man. He had them tied up. Laid, oh, laid he had them tied up. To, oh, yeah. I forgot. He had them tied up already laid out next to each other because he held that weapon up to Christopher. Yeah. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. He then proceeds to climb on top of Holly and rape her. She tried fighting and kicking and screaming, but no one could hear her. She then tried to talk to him. Imagine, after being raped, she tried to talk to him because she thought he was going to kill her. So she asked him what he needed, told him she could help him, and begged him not to hurt her. It was then that he took what she describes as a wooden board and began hitting her over and over again. He then turns her around and hits her some more on the back of the head. She says that she likely became unconscious at some point, even so that Angel, even though I hate calling him Angel because it just sounds so wrong, thought she was dead. Eventually, Holly regains consciousness and starts to walk. Whoa. Total survivor. She's a badass bitch. Yep. A senior from the university by the name of Chad Gitz, who was up late studying, sees something out of the corner of his eye around 1 or 2 in the morning, rushes out to bring her inside, and she collapses on the couch. So this, so the, then the railroad tracks are close to something. So is this like a, I mean, I don't know if you know, but is this like a regular hangout spot? Because that's weird to me. Where, like, I would never be like, yeah, let's go chill by the railroad yeah. tracks at nighttime. 
Yeah, I'm not 100% for sure. It has to be close to maybe the library or behind the university or something um, for Chad to have just been studying. And see her. Yeah, or, you know, maybe it's around the dorms or something like that, you know, close enough to where people are walking around or feel safe enough to walk around at night. And we'll post on our Instagram. There's a couple pictures available online um, with the articles. And one of the pictures shows exactly where – Holly and Christopher were walking and then where he was hiding before he attacked them, right? So you guys can kind of get a visual, but it doesn't really show any big buildings or anything close by. So it's probably around dorms or behind a dorm building. Or, or maybe they like just that. it's like a quiet spot where couples go, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Maybe. Holly suffered a broken eye socket, a broken jaw, and other injuries, and then of course she was raped. But through all that, she was able to give police a description of her attacker because she wanted to help. She knew she could help catch her attacker. I mean, she wanted to do everything that she could to make sure that they found this guy and that this didn't happen to anybody else. The detective on the case also remarks about her willingness to talk to the police, especially after everything that she had just gone through. Yeah, she's tough. That's It takes a lot. I mean, I can only imagine, but that... I just, I just feel like sometimes things happen and I feel like I blur out. Like I, I can't imagine something of that severity and you like remembering, okay, what do they look like? What is their hair? You know, how tall are they? Like, like she was so aware. She yeah. was so in the moment to be like, I need to remember this guy's fucking face. Cause all I would want to do is forget everything. Yes. I know? feel like that's how I am. Like if something bad happens or something, I try to forget immediately. Yeah. Like, but in her book, she describes Chris, her late boyfriend, as friendly, laid back, down to earth, someone who loved the outdoors and really didn't have any cares in the world. You know, typical college student. Yeah. So just a good person who was tragically and savagely taken by Resendis. So this is just a really brief overview. And if you want to read her story, go pick up her book called Soul Survivor or check out the episode on 48 Hours. October 2nd, 1998, a little over a year later. Angel would kill his second victim, a woman by the name of Leafy Mason, who was 87 years old Whoa. in Hugh Springs, Texas. So he doesn't have an MO then. He's just killing mm-hmm. randomly. Yep. You're, you're going to see. I mean, it's so random and across so many different states. Um, absolutely no MO. Yikes. Okay. He entered her home through a window, except, of course, the railroad tracks. Right? Hmm. That's what we're going to learn is our, our MO. Oh, we're right. the only really... Um, you know, constant, constant. Okay. Yes. He entered her home through a window and would bludgeon her repeatedly with an old antique iron that she owned. Investigators said that likely that she likely put up a fight, but in the end would be left to die on her bedroom floor. When they found her, her body was covered by a blanket. This murder would rock the small town that was Hugh Springs, Texas, as Miss Mason's murder would be the first capital murder case in Hugh Springs. The police chief and his two full-time officers usually only investigated petty crimes and wrote traffic tickets. The police chief, Randy Kennedy, was the first on the scene and would call it the most gory crime scene he had ever investigated. I mean, probably the only murder investigation he had ever investigated. Angel single-handedly robbed this small town of their peace. Soon after, many residents rushed to install security systems, and the police chief was flooded with reports of suspicious-looking people and just calls of nervous residents in general. A crime lab would link him to her death from a palm print 
found on Mason's window. And the fact that Leafy's house was only 50 to 70 yards, depending on the article you read, from the railroad. This, I mean, 50 to 70 yards is not far. No, no. <laughs> that means that it, it and, and you'll learn, I mean, we'll post yards. pictures. Yeah, we'll post the pictures because I think the pictures make a huge impact. It, it even kind of causes a little bit of fear in you when you see like a railroad and you see where these people were killed and how right. close of proximity they were killed. The murder charge would end up being the first in Texas for Angel, and it took more than a year to connect her murder to him. Now it's December 11th, 1998. Wait, but why did he kill her? Like, just to rob her? Just robbery gone wrong, or? Yeah, there's no reason. Like like Gosh. we said, there's not really an MO or a reason why he's killing these. Now, it, it, it will kind of be robbery you'll see in, in, in a few of the cases that we're going to talk about, um, because he does... Um, steal their vehicles, right? Okay. So auto theft was one of those crimes he committed in the 70s mm -hmm. when he was being deported. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really it, is he's stealing their cars for what? Like, to get where? It's never, never really known exactly what he was trying to do, where he was trying. Was he just trying to get to the next place? Right, because I keep going back to his childhood, to his mental state, right? Because sometimes when people have a tough childhood like he did, then their violence stems from I want to kill women because my mother uh, oh, yeah. was neglectful. Yeah. Or I want to kill. So when I first heard that the first the first murder was the guy, I was like, okay, he hates men because his uncle raped him as a kid. But now I'm like, okay, he killed this little old lady. Like, who? How? What? You know, it's just so random. Yeah, he does not only kill women. So he's killed Chris so far. He's raped Holly, and now he's killed the old lady. Wow. Okay. So December 11th, 1998, Fanny Whitener Byers, age 81. So it's almost like people who are just helpless. Like, right. is it? Is it? I mean, an 81 or 87-year-old? I well, mean, maybe he as a child felt helpless, so maybe that's why his victims are helpless? Maybe. I mean, but this lady was found beaten to death with a hammer at her Carl Georgia home. So he's in Georgia, right? Just a few months later, because we know that he killed Leafy in October, so just two months prior to. Resendez would provide information linking him to the crime. His next victim would be one of the more widely known victims because it would be her case that would earn Resendez the death penalty. When you Google Angel, Angel her picture almost always is the first to come up. Two months later, as we would come to find out after he murdered Leafy, on December 7th, so just six days after he killed Fanny Whitener Byers, on December 17, 1998, 39-year-old Claudia Benton, who worked as a physician or pediatric neurologist at the Baylor College of Medicine, would be found sexually assaulted, and the medical examiner, Dr. Joyce Carter, would testify that there were three stab wounds from the back that went through the front of her body. The stabs were so forceful they broke several of her ribs and collapsed her lung. Her body was bruised and two bones in her right forearm were also broken, apparently because she was trying to fight off her attacker. Crime scene photographs showed the bloody butcher knife that was used and Dr. Carter would also identify the weapon that she said was likely used to hit Claudia in the head 19 times repeatedly fracturing her skull. Her Houston area home was also located near railroad tracks. Her murder would also be linked to Resendez by fingerprints 
at the scene and from her Jeep, which had been stolen and then later recovered in San Antonio, Texas, near railroad tracks. Then five months later, in May of 1999, he would kill once again, this time a couple in Weimar, Texas. Located between Houston and San Antonio, a very small town in a 1999 article from the Texas Monthly written by Michael Hall would say that the town had two gas stations, both of which closed early, two motels, half the stores in downtown closed, and overall a town whose business was farming and animal processing. It was a town where everybody knew each other and everyone was pretty religious. Norman, AKA Skip, and Karen, his wife were well-known. Norman was a reverend and was expected on Sundays at one of the more larger Protestant congregations Weimar had. Norman and Karen would be found bludgeoned to death by a sledgehammer, which was leaning against one of the bedroom walls. Worried church members were the ones who found the couple when they failed to turn up for Sunday service. Okay, I think I do remember this story. Really? So this might be the only story that's kind of ringing a bell. Yeah, I never heard of this before. <laughs> she was also raped before and after she was killed. He would go on to steal some of their belongings and also their pickup truck, which would later be found in San Antonio, Texas, and would also link their deaths to Claudia's case through forensic DNA. He likely chose their home because their home faced the railroad tracks. And their picture, the picture that they took of their home, um, you, you, I mean, you're legitimately looking um, at the railroad track that is looking into their home. And I'm going to go ahead and show you, Alina, just because we, I have a picture of you. See it? Oh, wow. Yeah. Isn't that so scary? It's to like you're just at? walking right up to their house. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's an easy drop off. Less than a month later, on June 4th, 1999, miles from the Cernix home, 73-year-old Josephine Convica is found sleeping inside her residence in southern Fayette County, literally down the road from where Norman and Karen had been murdered. Her home was about a mile from the railroad tracks. On June 4th, in the middle of the night, Rosendis broke into her home through an unlocked window, bashed her head in with a gardening tool, sort of like a pickaxe, ransacked through her home, according to investigators looking for car keys, and left. She was found with a pickaxe still lodged in her head. You can imagine the poor town of Weimar and Fayette County. Local stores sold out of guns and ammo, and much of the elderly left their homes, those who lived near the railroad track anyway, to stay with relatives in other cities. I would have too. That's a smart thing to do. And it's crazy because sometimes like older people, they'll be like, no, I'm not leaving my home. This is my home. But I'm glad that they did because... That's just insane. Within 36 hours, the body of a 26-year-old school teacher by the name of Noemi Dominguez was found raped and bludgeoned to death in South Houston, oh, Texas. Wow. That's super close to us. And can you guess it? She also lived near railroad tracks. And her car was also missing. Manorino had covered her body with a quilt her mother had made her. Her brother Alejandro found her and would eventually testify in court. Matarino would say later he killed her because of abortion rights literature. And we finally have something. So is, so is he religious? Because I know we've talked about this in our previous case. For example, um, 
Andrea. Andrea. So yes. I yeah. so I know we've talked about this in previous cases. For example, Andrea Yates, she how she covered her kids up because she I guess that's like a lot of women murderers do that, but now we're seeing a a guy do this where are they does he feel sorry and is trying to respect their privacy, so that's why he's putting the cover over them? Because I know that's, that's what usually, Andrew Yates, and Andrew Yates was very religious. Yeah, that's usually what they say whenever we're working cases like that where the victims are covered. It's usually like some sort of remorse or something. Wow, that's crazy. And then I also think, I mean, I don't know, we'll get to it later because I've never followed this case, but he's bludgeoning all of his people. So I'm wondering if that has to do with him being hit on the head as a kid. So that again, that's my mind, like going back to his mental state and his uh, bring up, because he was dropped on his head and then he was hit on the head several times. So I'm wondering if that had an impact on him. Noemi's blood was found on the pickaxe that was used to kill Josephine, linking both of them together. Then on June 15th in Gorham, Illinois, George Moger who was 80 years old, was found in his mobile home. He had been shot in the head with a shotgun. Yes, it's all going back to the head. This is weird. Well, not weird, but... a shotgun. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and his daughter, Carolyn Frederick, 52, bludgeoned to death. Okay, so the female was bludgeoned to death, but the male was shot. So I feel like this is definitely... It has to hit home with... He was abused by a male, and maybe he just doesn't like women because they, you know, his mother sent him away. Their home was located about 100 yards from the railroad tracks. George and Carolyn would be his last known. Authorities began using the term serial killer after they were able to link a few of the murders. You have to remember, when the killings occurred, authorities still hadn't linked them all together. After the killings of the Cernics and Noemi, a task force in Houston was created, and a manhunt ensued for murdering. Authorities couldn't pinpoint him. The railroads had given him the perfect getaway. He had no pattern, and he just murdered for the hell of it, it seemed like. The only similarities were all the victims lived near tree tracks. He covered most of them with a sheet and used heavy objects to bludgeon his victims to death. He stole three of the victims' vehicles that would abandon the vehicles and wouldn't even take the time to cover his tracks. Authorities were able to link him to Claudia Benton's case because he left his prints on the steering wheel of her Jeep, which they were able to match to Levy's home because of the palm print he left on the window. The pickaxe that he used to kill the Cernics had Noemi's blood on it, leading authorities to use to believe he used the pickaxe in both. So, but that's so that's my other question. If he was so close to the train tracks, why was he stealing cars to get right, away? What was he trying to do? That's why they're saying like it was just so messy. Like, where was he trying to get? Why would he go from Weimar to San Antonio and then back to Weimar? And was he using the was he using like the train to get away, or why was he stealing cars? Was he was he driving by the train tracks or? Did he just like the train tracks and use the train tracks as a way to get? I mean, that's definite for sure. He would use the, the, the railroad track as a um, means for transportation. So then and so, like, they the would train. Find, yeah, so they would find the cars that he would steal close to a railroad track. Okay, so maybe he was using the car to run to just the Just get a little further out, maybe. Okay. 
and get to the other state. The, the thing is, like, why was he getting to another state? What was he doing in Georgia? Mm-hmm. What was he doing in Miami? Like, right. is it's there a random. motive behind it? Is he just, like, trying to get away, just moving? Like, does he know people in these places? Right. It, nothing is, I mean, there's no information on what he was trying to do, where he was trying to go. This is so weird. And Matarino was placed, of course, on the FBI's most wanted list in June of 1999. It was then that Gore and police would announce he was the main suspect in the killings of George and Carolyn. Later, authorities learned that after the killings of the Cernix, Matarino had been deported twice. He had even been detained in New Mexico, but when he was ran in the system, nothing came up. So he was deported, and each time, of course, we know, he made his way back. So because the system failed to identify him, he was able to kill four more people. But like in most cases, when it comes to technology, human error is always to blame. Resendez was known at this time to law enforcement by his alias, Rafael Resendez Ramirez. He had become one of the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives. Resendez was wanted in connection with a string of deaths spreading across the state of Texas, Kentucky, and Illinois. Accused serial killer Angel or Angel Macorino Resendez arrived at Hobby Airport in Houston on Tuesday, July 13, 1999, after turning himself into Carter in El Paso. He was led by Sergeant El Paso. He's made it all the way across Texas. El Paso. I just can't believe it. That's crazy. Yeah. He was led by Sergeant Drew Carter of the Texas Rangers. The day after his arrest, there was a memorial held by some family members of the murder victim, Josephine Conveca, who stood in prayer during, who stood in prayer for victims of accused serial killer Angel Maturino. Three of Resendez's victims, Norman and Karen Cernick and Josephine Conveca, were from the Weimar area. Angel Maturino Resendez's capital murder trial was held in Houston to find justice for the murder of Dr. Claudia Benton and began May 8, 2000. Wow. Jurors would eventually reject his plea of not guilty by reason of insanity and would convict him and sentence him to death. Resendez did not receive an execution date until Friday, January 6, 2006 in Houston, a whole six years after he was convicted guilty for all of these murders. I mean, six years isn't a lot. I hear a lot of people get, they'll be on, they'll be in jail for years before they get a date. Uh, yeah, before they get a date. Like, before they get a, a death sentence. I mean, some people I know I've heard, they'll be in jail for about 20 years before they get their death sentence. Like, before they actually get put to death. Right, before they actually, that's crazy. That's well, pretty short. Shortly before his execution, which was on June 26, 2006, Resendez confessed to other murders in addition to the known nine at the time of trial. Authorities were able to link him to at least 15 murders across six different states, including Texas, Kentucky, Georgia, Illinois, Florida, and California. The only sad thing about this case is that we don't know what was the reason behind it. Yeah. You know, he doesn't say. He doesn't say. And, you know, he was put to death. And so it's not like there was somebody who could study him for years later. You know, um, we just, there's just not enough information available as to why he was doing this. And that's why people lived in so much fear. I mean, that's why I remember my ex boyfriend's mom bringing that up because 
she was just like, he's just killing people. Like, it wasn't like, oh, he's killing young. You know, a lot of the um, big serial killers like Ted Bundy, we always go back to him because he had an MO, right? He had a particular uh, particular MO for the type of women that he killed. Right, yeah. And this guy, I mean, he was killing young, a 26-year-old teacher. Right. And then an 87-year-old woman living right. alone in a very, very small town. I mean, he was just going around creating fear yeah. and putting fear into the people of Texas. I mean, I remember it because that's how I heard about it. My mom just saying, oh my God, the, the railroad killer, right? Or the train track killer, or however they refer to him, because yeah. he was just all over the place. Um, not necessarily any reason why, right? Unfortunately, it's one of those cases where we don't know the reason behind, but we can have a little bit of peace in the sense of that I feel we may not all agree, right? I feel like justice was somewhat served in the sense of he did admit to the killings, right? So we know that he did murder these people. And there's closure for these families, and, at least. Right. There's some sort of closure in that sense. And then he had to live out his sentence because, of course, we know he was executed on June 27, 2006. So um, there is some sort of justice for these families. Not every case we're going to know exactly what caused these killers to do what they did, but we always have little similarities across the different cases and what can potentially cause them to do this. Yeah, so. for sure. I mean, we definitely, you know, I'm not a psychologist or whatever, but I can definitely pinpoint, like, he was killing, bludgeoning people, I believe, in the head because he might be putting that to his own head injuries. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And then killing maybe the older people because they were so helpless and maybe he felt helpless as a child. And then maybe he was killing the men because he was abused by a man. So that's the only thing that I can. And then maybe the women, he killed them because he had maybe some type of hate towards his mom for giving him up or sending him to the place where he was sexually abused for so long. Yeah, so I agree. But, I mean, I like the ending. He was executed. I like that it was a short period of time because who knows? He could still be living awaiting for his death sentence like some people do. So, yeah. well, yeah. Thank you so much, you guys, for listening to our episode this week. We hope you liked it. Um, can't wait to hear any feedback. If you guys know anything else or, if, you know, those of you that are in Texas or Kentucky or Georgia or Illinois or Florida or California, right, that you heard anything about these cases or any um, – what's the word speculation on any murders or anything that were never solved because you know it could have been the railroad truck killer yeah so. totally all right guys we'll have a great day and thank you so much for listening we will see you on the next one Thank you.